This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome listeners to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Amy Nelson, and we have a full house, so glad that everyone is back. Richard, welcome. Woo! I'm back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad I did. I'm no longer in that windstorm. I know you guys didn't mention it, but uh, last time I missed out because uh, w- with the Zach episode, I was in a windstorm. So, yeah, yes. almost made it to the other side of the lake. <laughs> <laughs> you showed video and the whole tent just moved. And I was so scared for you. So believe you me, I was just as scared in that video, too. <laughs> Well, and we have with us Justin. Welcome. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, I know it's the first time in, I think, three episodes we've all been together. So it's uh, yes. when we did the Dorinda Wood interview. Yeah. yeah. So great to have everyone here for another great episode of Roll Gray. Yeah. Well, talking about the Dorinda Wood interview, we do have some Babel Conference feedback. That was Earl Gray episode 263. Justin, why don't you start us off? Yeah, so uh, Stefan Ringlein says, what a fantastic episode. I enjoy these interviews a lot, and especially this one being in my season two rewatch. So many interesting behind-the-scenes insights to geek out about. Dorinda was laying the groundwork for the seasons to come, and she did an excellent job. Well done, Earl Grey crew. Thank you. Thank you. So glad you enjoyed the, the interview. We thought it was a great one, and uh, I think we got a good response. Yeah, I looked at um, bicycle chains just to see if I could do it. I could do it. I could actually do it. I'm serious. <laughs> and I'm thinking about doing it for a cosplay. I really am. <laughs> awesome. Well, and Stephen, that is great that it happened to coincide with your season two rewatch. That's perfect timing. We planned it just for you. Uh, wink. <laughs> <laughs> So Christopher Baca said, really interesting interview. I recently bought a 70-inch 4K TV and watching TOS and TNG Blu-rays on it. Wow, the episodes look great. So I recently, like I said, I I recently bought a 65-inch, and I was going to go to 70-inch, but there was nothing in my price range in the 240 240, uh, uh, frames per rate. So I was like, so I had to go to 65. So, yeah. But it's still great. Oh, it still looks great. Even at 120. Yeah, yeah it looks great. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. 
Well, Rob Chapman says, great episode and fantastic interview. My question made it too. Was really interesting to hear the process of costume design and how little time the costume designers had to create them. Yeah, I think we all were very impressed by that quick turnaround time of weekly and, you know, 26 episodes a season. Yeah, so many episodes and they're working on preparing one and doing one and wrapping up another. It's just incredible, right? (laughs) What they did. Mm -hmm. Very impressive. Well, today we have a fantastic Lost Episodes. Very excited. Justin, why don't you tell us about what we're going to discuss? Yeah, so uh, like we've done for a few other episodes, we put out there a title to see what people thought. And we got probably the biggest response we've ever got. I think the last time that I checked on the Babel conference, we had the magic number of 47 comments about this. Uh, So the title that we put out there is C-Spot Run. Now, before we read the the feedback on that, most of them uh, tied it into Data's Cat Spot. Unfortunately, this is going to be a season one episode, C-Spot Run, so... I, I did include one in here that talks about Data's cat. There were a whole bunch of other ones, but then I included the other ones that weren't really about Data's cat. So, But I didn't think it was that we had to exclude Spot because Spot could have been introduced in season one. It just didn't never made it. So I loved all the comments. No, the comments were great. And if listeners want to see all of them, they can they can uh, look at them on, on the Babel conference. No, it's not that it, they were bad guesses. It's just there were so many of them. We couldn't really <laughs> include them here. So yeah, before we get into the, the guesses. So uh, this one was written by a guy named Michael Halperin uh, for season one. Uh, he co-wrote the season one episode, Lonely Among Us, which was the only writing credit on Star Trek that he had. But anyway, there were lots of great guesses in the Babel conference. Richard, do you want to read the first one? Duncan Barrett said, a spatial anomaly incapacitates the entire crew of the Enterprise apart from Spot, who must take charge of the ship to save all their lives. I like that. Actually. I like it. Yeah. yeah. And I think I replied to Duncan like, Captain Spot to the rescue. <laughs> It'd be really cool if Spot had command uniform. Anyway, (laughs) that's a really cute idea. Well, you know, it reminds me of that uh, book with the cats in the TNG uniforms. Oh, yeah. Star Trek cats. Star Trek cats. Right. That. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Listeners, I think that there's a TNG one and a TOS one, which is basically cats in uniforms meant to look like the characters. So I I have both of them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, both. Okay, I just have the TNG one. No, actually, yeah, I, have I have both. TNG I have both. Too. Actually, what yeah. am I thinking of? Because I had the cute. I had the artist sign uh, sign it, sign it as well, thinking oh, that wow. that that was the person that talked to um, Amy, but I guess not. So right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was. Yeah. She, she she had like head deer in the headlights of like what? Yeah, <laughs> when I would start talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, for the next guest, we have Philip Hunter Gilfus. Yes, the Philip that used to be a co-host on Earl Grey. So he says, the Enterprise is sent on a relief mission to a planet experiencing a planetary illness. Dr. Crusher learns that all their children are illiterate. They only learn to read after being infected with the virus. Wesley is accidentally infected, transmitting it to the rest of the crew. Everyone loses the ability to read, except Data and Worf, who must now run the ship as the planetary infection continues. Who will be able to continue ship functions and cure the crew? 
Well, I, I like the response. I think that's a riff on the, the title, which was, um, I think, the title of one of the Dick and Jane books that in the U.S. used for little kids to learn how to read. So exactly. I like it. Very imaginative. See, see Dick run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and see Sally run. <laughs> exactly. Or run, Sally run. There you go. Hmm. Yeah. Christopher Lutz guesses, an outbreak resembling a human condition known as chickenpox spreads among the alien crew members of a science vessel and later the Enterprise. Dr. Crusher must face the unintended side effects of resistant viruses and genetic mutations that become a threat as a result of the widespread medical treatments. It's a crisis of conscience and confidence she must master. Think along the lines of superbugs as a result of antibiotics in our world. Well, I like that. Uh, definitely getting those viruses going haywire. That's always a good Trek story. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. I like that. <laughs> Wes Huntington says, Tasha gets abducted. No, not my mom. <laughs> and Data uh, has to go uh, after her. Data uh, gets captured and put in the same cell as Tasha. We learned more about her troubled past and the two escape eventually thanks to an effort and thanks to the efforts of Captain Picard. Kind of like attached with the whole abduction thing and learning about her troubled past. Interesting. I like that you included character development from Tasha because we just don't learn enough about her. So well done, Wes. I could totally yeah, also, see that. Yeah. And also for the listeners wondering why uh, Richard is saying Tasha would be his mom, that was from a patron exclusive that we did about our space family, right? And you have to want or pay for that <laughs> <laughs> to listen to it. That's right. Was that at least $5 a month? Something like <laughs> that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that was a fun one. Uh, so we also have uh, Brian Narowski. Oh boy, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, it says, the crew arrives at a planet to find everyone missing except for many dogs, and they investigate. Geordi is turned into a dog. The doctor finds some miraculous cure for Geordi, saving thousands of others on the planet at the same time. Well, that's huh. very interesting. Hmm. Kind of makes me think of Aquiel with the dog shapeshifter. <laughs> yeah, oh, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that would be really interesting if it's about dogs. Interesting that Geordi's turned into a dog, but okay. <laughs> Brett Hetherington says the Enterprise encounters an alien race that is so underdeveloped that they make the Packleds look like geniuses. In their attempts to open communications with the new aliens, they have to teach them the basics of the written word. Either that or Worf has a cargo <laughs> container fall on his head and develops aphasia. He is then forced to learn Federation Standard English via those old classic elementary reader books. Well, we got two guesses for the price of one. Thanks, Brett. <laughs> yeah, that's quite interesting. <laughs> I like the tie-in to the Packleds. Yeah. Mm. Without giving anything away, you're gonna love. Uh, you're gonna love hearing about those uh, cargo bins falling on the wharf again soon, Amy. Oh, great. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Wonder what that will those be about. Those fake cargo bins that drive me crazy every time I see them. Well, they're not the scale. They're about this. They're about two inches big. But yeah, something like that. Mm. <laughs> Way to tease the listeners. I'm not sure if they even know what you'll be talking about. <laughs> I guess out. they'll. I guess they'll and... have to find out on 275. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so Eddie McDonough uh, said or guesses. 
William Riker gets hurt in an away mission, but before he passes out, he sees something vital to help the Enterprise get out of trouble. Riker gets hit on the head and loses his ability to communicate. He can't talk or understand, read, or or write, so Crush, uh, Dr. Crusher and Deanna have to teach him how to communicate communicate again by using C-spot-run <laughs> C teaching methods. I like that. Nice. Well, we have a little pattern with a couple of people thinking it has to do with forgetting how to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, hmm. so shall we find out what this one is all about? Yes, the suspense is killing us. I know, and we'll see how close anyone gets to it. All right, so here we go. C-Spot Run by Michael Halperin. Proceeding to Procyon 3, the Enterprise is searching for a supposed lost colony, a group of high-tech iconoclasts who settled that particular world. When the world had first been discovered, the dominant form of life was an animal known as the Rukas, a panda-like race who were not aggressive by nature and were nearly made extinct by the settlers. Those that did survive were taught to do various tasks, much like chimpanzees are on Earth today, and the species is bred on farms situated throughout the world. A panda-like species. We haven't seen that in Star Trek, right? Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> Nothing like it, really. So then an away team led by Riker, and including Wesley, beams down to one of the aforementioned farms, where they encounter a 15-year-old girl named Delva, who is obviously frightened by something. She waves what is essentially a 20th century shotgun at them. Naturally, they are able to disarm her and eventually learn that her parents have gone into a town area to partake in an annual celebration. Wesley is left behind with Delva as they proceed. Picard tries to contact the away team, but discovers that somehow the transporter engaged a device set up by the colonists which has blocked off all communication and cut off the automatic beacon they had been detecting as well. Once they arrive in town, the away team is surprised to see the settlers have reverted to a more simple lifestyle. They live in wooden buildings which supplant the ruins of the nearby buildings. In addition, there are a variety of bookstalls in the main square and everyone gets around via horse and carriage. I think it's funny they try to say it's old because they have bookstalls and, you know, Picard likes to read books, but (laughs) this is season one. Maybe they didn't know that. Um, So then they take note of a being known as a memory master who begins detailing the history of this world, which somehow manages to combine and twist the history of both the planet and the Federation. Once this little oration is complete, the people start throwing their books into a fire. Riker manages to retrieve one of them and is shocked to find that all of the pages are blank. Then an old man named Court takes the book from his hands, throws it into the flames, and leads them to his home. Hmm. It's very strange so far, right? Why would you throw books with the? With, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> well, you'll, yeah, you'll you'll find out. But it does seem weird. Like there's, it's blank, but they want to throw these books on the fire. Invisible ink. <laughs> Could be, yeah. So meanwhile, Delva is giving Wesley some history concerning Procyon Three, telling him that there was a time when the society flourished with technology, but then the planet was almost destroyed by the misuse of the same technology. So the people revolted against men of knowledge and illiteracy is now the norm. It is deemed better to be illiterate than to have the potential to destroy their world. She does, however, have one book, which features the infamous Dick and Jane. Back with the away team, Court has basically explained the same thing that Delva did and adds that real books are kept hidden because they are highly illegal to have. History is taught to the population by the memory masters so that some basic working knowledge will be passed from one generation to the next. 
At that moment, the door bursts open, and the equivalent of police enter, capturing Jordy, Troy, and Court, while Riker, Data, and Tasha manage to escape. They attempt to contact the Enterprise, but to no avail. What do you guys think so far? <laughs> did Did you say Quark? Court. K-O-R-T. Oh, Court. Yeah. Oh. No, not Quark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an early version of Quark. But no, he's, it's Court. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Okay. I, yeah. I, I, for a second there, I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> DS9 right. already? Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then they make a note here in this book that we take this from, which again is Lost Voyages of Trek and the Next Generation. It says, according to the outline, Wesley accidentally forgets about the prime directive and reads from a Robert Frost book of poetry he just happens to carry with him. Yeah. I don't think he mm. would just accidentally forget the prime directive directive really and why would you carry that on an away mission <laughs> and why would he have a book of poetry from the 19th century yeah seems odd good question so then while delva is frightened by the fact that he is actually reading she manages to find some solace in the words that are being spoken shortly thereafter the girl's parents return and are told that wesley is a friend and they go on to explain that some strangers are being tried for treason when they are alone Wes tries to get Delva to assist him in rescuing the others. While hiding in what's left of a scientific complex, Riker accidentally falls to a lower level where he sees Aruka tending to books. Then he comes to the realization that these creatures are actually intelligent and they learn to write, read, and speak from being associated with the colonists. Naturally, they fear if such knowledge became public, they would be exterminated, so they keep these abilities a secret from the humans while at the same time are drawn to making sure the library survives. So that's kind of interesting. And I don't know if it's really explained here. Like, yeah, I guess it's a colony of humans that had arrived there a long time ago and there was already an alien species maybe. So, but yeah, there's like these two different parts, one that's remaining illiterate and another that actually knows how to read, but is keeping it secret. Mm-hmm. So at their trial, Troy, Jordy, and Court are sentenced to death with the memory master using a twisted version of a Federation doctrine as the reason. The Rukas help Riker to obtain, obtain some primitive weapons, and it has primitive weapons in, quote, in quotes, and they're used to get the others out of jail. Wes and Delva catch up to them while Riker uses the memory master as a hostage and tells them that if the away team isn't given back their weapons and communicators, then Troy will wipe out the history of the planet from the memory master's mind. So... In this version, Troy has the ability to wipe knowledge from people's minds. Or they could be <laughs> saying that. You That's, know what I mean? Like a yeah. bluff. It could be. I was also just thinking maybe it's early season one and they don't know what Troy's capable of. But Yeah. yeah, Wiping people's minds. <laughs> I like that. But yeah, it could be a bluff. I mean, we had a previous one where basically I think Riker was bluffing that he had a nuclear weapon or something, right? Or that Picard. I don't remember, but it, it was a weird it's bluff. It's a thermal nuclear detonator. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. So Court steps forward with an old book of Federation codes, which the elderly Ruka reads from, including a call for freedom of expression, freedom of worship, and freedom of assembly. The people actually take these words to heart and turn against the tribunal, calling for justice for everyone. Picard manages to get through to the away team and beams them back up, and while the captain reports their findings to the Federation, the elderly Ruka is sitting in a field on the planet reading Run, Spot, Run to some children who slowly repeat his words. 
So first I'll say this is a good deal shorter than some of the other ones we've seen, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't know. I think it might, it's kind of an interesting outline. I, Amy, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, I was writing a few notes as you were talking and I like the premise because I think it sort of twists the normal of, you know, being literate and how much we relish and appreciate and believe that being smarter and getting an education is going to further and better humanity. And so this script sort of flips that. And so now they're like afraid of technology going so far that they would rather play it safe and just better to be illiterate than to have come close to that destruction that they, you know, almost had. And I think it's interesting, like the underground, like the symbolism of that, because usually when you're underground, you're doing illegal things, you know, get it from the underground. In this society, it is illegal. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess so. And so, but this now, I don't know, with the twist, it's like, okay, we're going, it sort of breaks my teacher heart that people can't see education as, you know, furthering and, and making things better. So it's a very interesting premise that I see. Mm -hmm. And what do you think, Richard? Um, I mean, I guess I, I, I like, I mean, I like the story. It's very interesting to, like Amy said, turn, basically turn, um, literacy into a black market. Um, but like, I don't know. I, 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 I foresee more problems coming out of this episode and I, I just don't, I mean, it, I, I could see it I, uh, for other subjects or something like that, but like to say that being intelligent is a bad thing especially with a within a show that you know basically you know uh glorifies accomplishments and education and unity and all that kind of stuff i mean it kind of goes against everything the show is well i i, I think though I mean? they're presenting this society and showing that they're wrong in the end to believe yeah. that which yeah. I think is such yeah. an interesting and in how they flip that, you know? Yeah. You know, like what, what's interesting is this uh, particular script actually makes me think of two different Enterprise episodes. It makes me think of Cogenitor, where the, the cogenitor gender isn't really allowed to read or write. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also makes me think of, of North Star, where they are these native aliens, these Skagarans, that the humans that are there, I think, also don't allow to read or write. Actually, North Star, I think, has some similarities to to this, although the humans get there by force, (laughs) right? They're not really wanting to be there when they get there. But uh, I I think that is interesting, like this, and and the whole society in this one, C-Spot Run, like, just (laughs) prizes being illiterate. But for some reason, it made me think of those and and, uh, different groups not really being allowed to to be able to read or write. Interesting, that line you said where they, you know, had the cities and the buildings and then they Mm -hmm. reverted backwards to the huts and the, you know, wooden houses and horse and carriage. And it almost made me think about the Discovery episode, New Eden, Uh. where the, you know, the colony was taken supposedly by the Red Angel And, you know, they sort of reverted and they had the technology, but they refused to use it. Ooh, that's a good point. Yeah. 
I could definitely absolutely see that. Any other thoughts on that before we see whose guess may have been the closest? Well, and I liked the, um, I know you guys were questioning it, but when Wesley reads out of the Robert Frost book of poetry, I really like that and how it said that the teenager, the teenage female person, you know, was like, it, it, what did you say? The dulcet sounds of the book is how I heard it. <laughs> but oh, okay. <laughs> what What did you say? Oh, no, that, I was just saying her name was Delva. No, 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 no. But when you were reading it and I was thinking, oh, the dulcet sounds of Robert Frost. And, you know, it sort of calmed her and hmm. soothed her. And that's oh, how it says it says she manages to find some solace in the words. Yeah, the solace. And yeah, so that's how I obviously heard it. <laughs> but I like that because, you know, poetry um, and good poetry has that effect on the soul. And I like that they highlighted that in that script. Oh, nice. So, I mean, there were a couple of guesses that mentioned illiteracy. Uh, so uh, let's see, I think we had Philip Gilfus and who else do we have here? I think Eddie McDonough and Brett Hetherington, I may have missed one, but there were a few people that talked about illiteracy. Of course, it wasn't exactly this uh, plot, but I think they were on the right track, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was thinking, because when you said they were throwing the books in, but the books were blank, just blank pages, mm, yeah. and I was wondering where that was going to, and maybe it's because the people in the underground replaced the pages to salvage the books that they thought that they were burning. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think that this one needed a lot more fleshing out, but I think the idea is kind of interesting to to try to address maybe a society that is trying to play it safe by by not allowing people to read or write and isn't really taking the the risks because they're mm-hmm. just afraid of what'll happen with technology. Yeah. Risk I think it's interesting. It's our business. <laughs> exactly. I was thinking that too. So would you guys have wanted to see this one? It definitely needs a little bit of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, um, yeah, I, I think it, there needs to be a little bit more substance um, for, for this to make it work. But I mean, yeah, I could see it working. Um, yeah, I could see it working. Yeah. Yeah. With a little work. Yeah. Yeah, I think it definitely needs work, but I love the idea of, well, as a teacher, I'm here to educate and teach and, you know, try and progress humanity forward and, uh, you know, so I definitely would like to see a episode like that. Okay, excellent. So that one didn't take very long. Should we do one more? Yes. Because I have one more ready. All right. Okay. So the, I mean, we had the guesses for the first one, not for this one, but the second one is called The Legacy, not to be confused with the season four episode Legacy, which featured Tasha's sister, Ishara Yar. So it's The Legacy. Uh, It was written by someone named Paul Aratow. So he didn't have any other involvement in Star Trek, but he was a writer, producer, and director that had some credits in the 70s and and 80s that you can look up on IMDb. Um, So... Let's take a look at this one. Everyone on oh, the bridge. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, is sorry. this also a, a season one? We're still in that time period. 
Let me double check here. I mean, if if they mention Tasha, then the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty sure it's. I'm, okay. I'm pretty sure it's around that time period. That. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so we're gonna go into the legacy, which I believe would have been from season one. Everyone on the bridge of the Enterprise is surprised to be picking up a radio broadcast of music. This is interrupted by an emergency signal from a passenger ship, which is supposedly in a, quote, Bermuda Triangle of Space. I feel like one of these other Lost episodes mentioned a Bermuda Triangle of Space, didn't it? Sounds really familiar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the starship approaches, but is unable to grab the vessel with its tractor beam because of an ion storm. A woman pilot named Lara volunteers to take a shuttle to the ship, which Picard allows. Unfortunately, she disappears in the storm, and scanners indicate there is no other ship in the vicinity. Yeah, that sounded a little risky, like, oh, we can't grab this vessel, so, uh, oh, we have a volunteer here who's going to take a shuttle to check it out. I don't know. But anyway, shortly thereafter, she mysteriously returns and is debriefed by the captain. Lara reluctantly tells him that she had seen a beautiful winged creature outside of the shuttle. She's then examined by Beverly Crusher, who deems her to be in perfect health. The mystery deepens when the Enterprise begins sending out its own distress signal, and the crew learns that two other Federation vessels are now en route to rescue them. The ship starts picking up the strange music that had appeared earlier, and it seems to be taking control of Lara. All communication channels are suddenly jammed, and there is no way to alert the Federation or the two approaching vessels of the danger that exists there. Then Beverly's further examinations of Lara determine she is pregnant with a rapidly growing fetus. This was not the case before she went out in the shuttle. And I'm sure as you might think, Amy, this seems to have some parallels with the child, right? Right, (laughs) Something weird happens and somebody gets impregnated. But um, I do think that, uh, I can't find it, an assurance for sure but i'm pretty sure it's season one because of that and they wouldn't have done something else like that if if the child had already aired yeah so as the child inside her develops lara grows stronger and displays extraordinary powers which leads beverly to the conclusion that the child is superhuman the jamming of subspace communication lessens to the point where picard is able to contact starfleet which replies that they may order an abortion Lara, thanks to the child, picks up signals from the broadcast they're intercepting and warns Picard that the Enterprise is in grave danger which can only be averted by changing the course of the starship. Picard refuses, probably trying to determine whether it's Lara or the alien threat speaking, but the woman somehow manages to convince the navigator to follow through on her warning and the course is changed resulting in their, in their missing disaster. I have to say, like if they went through with this one, I think that probably would have been controversial i know in the child they were basically uh thinking about whether to keep the child or not but this is like starfleet is telling them what to do which mm-hmm. i think would have been weird but well i'm still that's... surprised that lara was able to convince the navigator to change course over picard's expressed <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> she you has know, extraordinary powers of persuasion maybe i don't know <laughs> let's see where this goes yeah it's it's it, it's weird. So uh, Picard is given the order to destroy the embryo, but he manages to come up with a reason not to do so at that time. Meanwhile, Lara tells the captain that in a parallel universe, there is a battle between good and evil going on, and the good alien is attempting to come into this universe to battle the evil. 
So I don't know about you guys, but that makes me think of the original series episode, The Alternative Factor, where there's like this alternate universe and like there's this battle between this good and bad guy. So okay, okay. Yeah. Brendan, one of Brendan Shamatala's favorite episodes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it made me think of that. So apparently the child is the key and she wants the two of them to take a shuttlecraft. Finally, Picard realizes that only Lara can make the decision about her future. That's the true meaning of the prime directive, which is weird because that usually has to do with societies. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Lara elects to go where no woman has gone before by having the child. As the story comes to an end, Lara takes the shuttlecraft and heads for the signal they had been picking up as well as her destiny. Now, you can probably tell by the shortness of this that it probably needed some some work. Um, it's probably the shortest one that we've done so far, but uh, what do you guys think about this, Amy? Okay, I don't like this one. No, that was I really. <laughs> that was it for the outline. Yeah, I know it's really short. That, that but... was extremely short. <laughs> yeah, but it seemed like that didn't have a clear premise. For example, yeah, it was a little confusing. Right, there was a clear, you know, idea of you know overcoming illiteracy and and having that discussion as the theme. And it's like, yeah. what's the theme here? I don't know that Lara can you know control her own destiny or that she's getting really small or is the theme <laughs> about this alien species in parallel universe that's you know trying to battle good and evil like it's too no i don't i don't like it yeah it, it, it does feel a little odd i mean especially because you got something more fleshed out with the child that's kind of similar that there's this rapidly growing fetus and like it has extraordinary powers or whatever but so is the consensus like it would need a lot of development or just like no not interested yeah i because I, it because if, yeah. if it's if it's as simple as that and and we haven't taken much time with these two i actually have a third one that i've prepared that might be more interesting how about that well, wait did would you want to see that one, the legacy? I, I, no, I mean not okay. in its. Yeah, no, not in its current form, because it, it's just like really a, a short sketch. I mean, doing it because it happened to be in this book, but it's a pretty short sketch, and I'm not really sure what it was going for, except like there's this mythical child, and she has some journey to go on. Yeah, it's pretty sketchy. Yeah, it just it didn't even seem cohesive at all <laughs> yeah okay sorry if that was disappointing but uh go ahead well i i will say that the child is much better than this but that is my I opinion I'll, i think i'll agree with that yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> so should we go to another one since that one was so short yes, yes. and yeah. i have been waiting for this you've been one. waiting for this one all right yeah so listeners i hope you've kept listening because the next one is called ferengi gold written by none other than gene roddenberry who needs no introduction to our listeners exactly. here exactly this is the first one that we've covered that's by by gene roddenberry it's a season two episode um, and actually, I don't think he has any specific writing credits in season two, so it's kind of an interesting insight to what he was thinking about at that time. So, let's go into Ferengi Gold, which I think is a great title. <laughs> it sounds it pretty intriguing. It is. I mean, from what we know about Ferengi and gold, they go hand in hand. <laughs> right. Or at least gold press latinum. But anyway, yeah. um, 
All right, so the, the bridge crew of the Enterprise is abuzz with the rumor that the star cluster they're in contains a world that has developed on a parallel course to Earth. Maybe similar to Parallel Earth that's in the original series. So the vessel approaches Lurta 117. Dr. Catherine Pulaski comes to the bridge, establishing herself as something of a historian who has never seen a parallel world before. Interesting establishing her as a historian, which we don't, mm -hmm. I think, really get in, in the next mm -mm. generation. So according to data, a population, according to data, a populated area on Lurta bears many similarities to Boston in the 1770s. Picard wishes that it mirrored France at that time, for it would have been Earth's first experience with political freedom. Pulaski counters that North America was first and considerably more interesting. Data quells the debate by noting that so-called parallel worlds are only similar to each other rather than identical. I think it's funny to think about them having that disagreement like, North America was free first, no, France, you know. Yeah. So... <laughs> So the Enterprise draws closer, and more accurate readings reveal that the culture does mirror North America in the 18th century. Riker wants to lead an away team, but Picard is reluctant to possibly interfere. Worf abruptly announces that a Ferengi cargo ship is locked in a lower orbit and has not yet detected the Enterprise. Picard has the starship put in a parking orbit on the opposite side so that the planet will lie between the two ships. Due to the presence of the Ferengi, Picard authorizes Riker to take an away team down to the surface. Riker, Troy, and Geordi beam down in the appropriate clothing. <laughs> Which I think is funny. Like, does Geordi have his visor in this? these people that are supposed to be like 18th century equivalents? Doesn't really say. So they beam down, and they're able to blend in, though two things come to mind as they observe this world. And this is in quotes because I think it's from what Gene Roddenberry wrote. The female members of this planet are unusually lovely, tall, fair-skinned beauties. Also, the people wear a great amount of gold jewelry. At least now they can understand why the Ferengi are so interested in this world. To question the natives, Riker has a tricorder beamed down. Pretending to be a stage actor and magician, he does an excellent job of double-talking about lights and shadows and images, but ultimately it turns out the locals don't recognize either the Ferengi or their cargo vessel. It's suggested that Riker perform his magic for their spiritual leader, the Reverend Mathis Ferguson, and it really does say Ferguson. I'm not sure if that's just a typo and it should be Ferguson or Ferguson is deliberate. But I, I, th I also think it's interesting that Riker's like, look at this magic here, like, Seems against the Prime Directive, but anyway. Right. <laughs> so then the away team is led to a motor bus, and it does say motor bus, and it also says here that indicates one difference between this world and the Earth of the 18th century. <laughs> so the motor bus takes them away, and they arrive at the Commons Church and meet Reverend Ferguson. Riker shows him the tricorder images, and Ferguson responds that it's the Angels of Beotane which is what they refer to as God. And these people must be holy ones to hold such images. The Reverend has been told by the angels not to mention them except to the most trusted leaders. These angels, he adds, are far to the west. Noting the Reverend's gold bracelet, Riker asks if the angels are interested in the substance. Of course, is the response. It is holy metal, beloved of Beotane and his angels. From it, they receive their strength and purity. Picard has the away team beamed back aboard. 
In the transporter room, he explains that sensors indicate gold is about as abundant here as it was on Earth, but it's found in rich vein concentrates, making it quite simple to mine. It is the captain's determination that the Ferengi, their greed be damned, not interfere with the evolution of this world. Now, I don't know how much we see the Enterprise-D like trying to interfere when others are interfering with the world, but it seems like it's their determination to do something about this. Yeah, which I think is interesting. This parallel society could potentially be important for Federation scholars, but contamination must be minimized. The best move would probably be to send the away team to the location of Ferengi transporter activity. Riker starts to assemble his people when Picard bribes Pulaski, and it has bribes in quote, I don't know what that means, uh, into agreeing with him that Riker is fatigued and due to regulations must stay aboard. Riker objects, but is effectively overruled. Ultimately, Picard, Pulaski, Troy, and Data beam down. They appear in the vicinity of a mining location and immediately notice several tattered natives who exhaustively work the mine. On one of the natives' wrists is an odd-looking bracelet. One Ferengi, with an electronic whip weapon, you know, those great energy whips they have in the first season, That's watches funny. over them. Yeah. <laughs> so lots of gold is in evidence. At that moment, the away team is ambushed and rendered unconscious. In the mine, it becomes apparent that the natives being brought in are females, and the Ferengi are delighted that they captured two more in the form of Pulaski and Troy. So according to this script, they bring Troy and Pulaski back to consciousness first, followed by not a little lascivious pinching and prodding. It actually has that in quotes in the script. And what we're seeing is a side of the Ferengi only hinted at previously, as the Ferengi relate to females as objects, mindless possessions, and treat them accordingly. And they also consider sexual equality to be ridiculous, which I think is a lot of what we see in the Ferengi, especially later. So when they awaken, Picard and Data are, are wearing the bracelets they noticed earlier, which are actually agony devices activated whenever the Ferengi are displeased with them. So at first, Pulaski and Troy are totally uncooperative with their Ferengi hosts, but change their attitude when they are told they will be beamed aboard the cargo vessel for distribution at the ship's next stop. Meanwhile, Picard and Data are forced to stack gold ingots, but their identity is revealed when Picard's hidden communicator falls to the ground. Realizing that it's up to them, Troy and Pulaski come onto the Ferengi with every trick they've learned in their space travels. And yes, it does, it does say that in quotes. That's what it had in the script. Their intent is to delay the Ferengi from killing Picard and Data while simultaneously convincing the Ferengi to drop their guard, which gives the duo the opportunity to gain the upper hand. Troy and Pulaski free Picard and Data, and the four of them beam back to the Enterprise. Picard is described as being angrier than we've ever seen him because of the Ferengi plan to utilize the world below them as a forced labor slave camp, as well as their treatment of the native women. He develops a plan which will cause the Ferengi to have to abandon their hope of kidnapping native women because it all works out and, quote, they won't have the room, whatever that's supposed to mean. He then gives the order for the Enterprise to be revealed to the cargo ship. Phasers and photon torpedoes are armed. Surprised by the unexpected appearance of a Federation heavy cruiser and shocked by its menacing readiness, the Ferengi captain is only too happy to accept Picard's invitation to beam aboard for a meeting. During that meeting, Picard notes that the Ferengi have as much right to be here as the Federation, but since this world holds such a historical interest to the Federation, the hope is that it would be allowed to evolve naturally. To this end, he claims the Federation will pur purchase any rights that the Ferengi may have. 
As a result, Picard has ton after ton of gold patterned from energy by the Enterprise transporters beamed over to the cargo ship. It doesn't say replicators for some reason, but that's basically what they're doing. <laughs> Which makes me think, like, why don't the Ferengi just buy a replicator? They can just, you know, have all the gold they want. But anyway... <laughs> And the vessel departs with every available inch loaded with the gold. On the planet, there is confirmation that the prisoners have been released. So then there's actually a note here from Roddenberry in the script. For those who may not understand the mechanics of a robber baron society, Roddenberry noted, Picard points out that what they've done is to seriously disrupt the Ferengi economy. The value of gold to them was based on its scarcity. Even if this bullion doesn't flood the market, it will probably cause the government to ban visits to planets where gold can be found so readily. Data comments on the more positive aspects of gold, and Picard responds that if the Ferengi can learn from this treasure to appreciate the artistic loveliness of gold, this might accomplish more than even wrecking their economy. And that's the end. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, Amy, what do you think of this one? Well, I can tell that I would probably like to see this just in part because it is much more fleshed out than the legacy Right. Um, there definitely seems to be a theme of, you know, this Ferengi trying to plunder the civilization and make it their, you know, mining colony and, you know, the exploitation of human beings. Like, that sort of seems to be the theme. Um, it just... And he is throwing a lot of things in there, like the Ferengi, these angels from the West, these gods, you know, and... Mm -hmm. Get And we always know Roddenberry is, you know, enamored with, you know, dispelling the thought of what is God and, oh, it's just really the Ferengi. So I, I definitely right. can see that. And boy, man, Roddenberry, you can just always tell, oh, all the women are lovely. And yeah. <laughs> I just roll my eyes every time. I'm sorry, Gene Roddenberry, why? Why do you do this every single time you have to write something? But I wouldn't say it's every time, but he did have a particular interest, I think, in sex appeal. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And when you were reading, you know, about describing the planet and how the women are particularly lovely, lovely I was like, oh, here we are, justice again with everyone running around, <laughs> you know, <laughs> everyone looks yeah. beautiful, uh, definitely has his uh, Roddenberry stamp on it. But I think I would like to see it because, uh, you know, we're still in the age of Ferengi is, you know, our nemesis. There definitely mm -hmm. was some quirks like, well, Riker, you know, oh, what was it? To Pulaski to make her say that Riker, you know, couldn't go down, bribed her. Yeah, was that bribed what it her, was, you whatever, know? whatever like, that means. That's not a Picard trait that he would have. It, it really, it, it's, it, I think it's very out of character for Picard, unless he was like, hey, doctor, you can, you know, have a couple days off duty or something. But it doesn't yeah. really say what the bribe is. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, and but, you know, it's early TNG. No one really knew exactly what the characters were. This was were for season two, though. They were a little deeper into it. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I was trying to give him the benefit of the I doubt know. with that, but <laughs> I mean it's still it's still early on, but yeah. Yeah. So and I like the uh, that sort of the end where they're talking about gold and the scarcity, and that's what makes it good. And then 
you know, but then if there's an overabundance, then, you know, sort of the uh, dynamics of supply and demand and precious metals mm-hmm. and, and what is it that you're going to trade, that's an interesting concept to throw in at the end as well. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Richard? Well, um, I actually, I kind of like the story. I mean, obviously, tweak it a bit. I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, to piggyback off of what Amy said, you know, ditto. <laughs> so, <laughs> but like, I mean, I kind of like those stories um, that he does because like it, it gets, well, not that, you know, women are objects sort of thing, even though they are all beautiful. FYI, <laughs> but like I'm just saying, like it, it uh, maybe tweak it a little bit, maybe not so not so much like justice and uh, and talk about it uh, just like justice, but like just tone it down a bit um, on the objectivity. But otherwise, I like it. I really do. I I really like yeah. this. I, I really like the idea of the story. Obviously, tweak it, just like any other story. Um, yeah, but like. Yeah, I actually like where the direction the direction of this story because, uh, yeah, I mean it's great. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it is pretty interesting because I mean because basically like in early TNG it's like the Frangi are greedy and they were supposed to be menacing, but this was actually showing you what they're really capable of because it's like they they want slave labor and they want to they treat women like objects and I mean it it puts them I think in even worse light and you see like what their greed can really lead them to so i think it could have been really interesting in that way and just kind of highlighting not just like their greedy little beings but their greedy exploitative beings who can really like put down a whole planet right which i think would have been pretty interesting to see in which i think for the most part we i i don't think we ever really see something like like that until the Voyager episode where the Ferengi that are stuck in the Delta Quadrant are actually taking advantage of a uh, of a planet. I think it, it's only in then. But this also reminded me, there's a next generation novel called Debtor's Planet, which is about the Ferengi exploiting a planet, kind of in this way. And mm-hmm. what's interesting about that novel is that it includes as a character Ralph Offenhaus, who was the guy from the neutral zone, who was like the 20th century businessman who came into the 24th century. And in this novel, he's become a Federation ambassador, and he's like the perfect one to deal with the Ferengi. It's, it's actually a really great novel that I enjoy a lot. But it made me think of that kind of story. But like, it is rare that you see the Ferengi actually like exploiting a planet. So I think that's pretty interesting to see. So yeah, I think it would have needed some some tweaks. Uh, I think it would have been interesting to see how they would pull off something that would be like Boston in the 1770s, but with buses. (laughs) I think that would be a bit odd, but, you know, I think it would have been interesting because that's a time period you don't see too much in Star Trek, like the 18th century. So anyway, overall, I think it, it, it could be interesting. And I think it's great to actually see in this collection one from, you know, Gene Roddenberry himself. So any other thoughts you guys have on this one or overall still a great title Ferengi gold yep (laughs) yeah for sure and too bad they didn't use that well listeners next week we are going to Richard why don't you tell them we're all going to die no (laughs) does that mean we have to wear red shirts 
Probably. Is, is, oh, oh, we're all going to die? Is this a role-playing game again? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. That's 275. <laughs> okay, right, 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 right. I won't um, die for yeah, ten, no, nine no, no, episodes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're all going to die in TNG because we're going to be talking about the death in TNG in general. I guess I guess concepts, uh, actual episodes, and um, yeah, we'll see where the conversation takes us. But yeah, that's going to be the subject is death in TNG. All right. All right. A little morbid, but, you know, it's a part of life. And so we will explore it next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it has been so much fun going over lost episodes from The Next Generation. But that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Warp 5. Well, and I feel like a side quest could be finding more spheres and gathering intelligence from each one. And each one has like a different way you have to get into them and a different thing you have to collect. Right, or yeah, or they're, they're cloaked differently. Yeah. Or, each one, ha- each yeah, one is I... in- individual. Earl Grey. Because like the DNA transformation, what? where's the DNA coming from that's being transformed? You know... I, it's like I a mean, replicator. Yeah, and I think that again, <laughs> no. the, the the yeah, but I mean again, the explanation that it's an advanced Genesis device kind of makes me buy mm, it more. Okay, yeah, but it, it just felt a little weird. The DNA thing, it just look, it looks like some. Hey, we need. Can somebody just throw some leaves on the bridge? You know, but you know, I think it's a really cool concept. The the snakes in the <laughs> in the uh, torpedo. The torpedo. I I. For some, it, at that moment, I thought this is the Halloween three of Star Trek: The Next Generation. <laughs> to the journey. That's that's a really good point, Suzanne. We need to clarify because we're, when we're talking about Chakotay and Seven, some of the best romantic scenes are not actually with Chakotay; they're with hologram Chakotay. Yes, I would like to meet hologram Chakotay. He seems nice. You want to date with holographic <laughs> Chakotay? Okay. <laughs> if I had a holodeck, you know, I'd be programming that in right now. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Saru finally realizes at some point he's seeing its language in ultraviolet light. Basically Morse code. I don't know why they don't say that wording. Oh, you thought Morse code? Because I was thinking binary. That makes sense too, but isn't binary kind of a version of Morse code? Because Morse code is a type of binary language. Because all it is is beeps and not beeps. You know what I mean? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it will come right up.
So before we go any further, a bonus question. Oh, it's been a while. It okay. has been some time. So go, going off of the last thing we talked about, who's your favorite Ferengi in Star Trek? Ooh. Who's first? <laughs> oh, well, you I can go. tell you who mine is, but I don't want, maybe I'll steal your choice. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Why not? Yeah. Okay, my favorite Ferengi is Nog. I just love his whole character arc from being, you know, a kid in DS9 to be growing up and being in Starfleet and all the stuff that he goes through and his war injury and all that stuff. So I love Nog. He's my favorite. Nog is Jake's friend? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Or Commander Nog or Captain or whatever. (laughs) Future Captain Nog. That is my favorite. That didn't happen. And I like his enthusiasm and how he's... I love when he's interacting with Cisco. That mm-hmm. really is my favorite. Yeah. So Nog is your favorite for Ingrid? No, too? I, I'm okay. just for that character. <laughs> okay. Um, I like. I don't know if I'm supposed to, but I like Rom. He's Quark's no, brother. no. I I love Rom too. He's great. I think he plays him so well of sort of the dunce and the, but he's. Pretty he's not smart. always though. He's pretty smart. No, sometimes. I know, yeah. and that he, you know, figures out that he's good at engineering and that he's mm-hmm. not good at being a Ferengi, and that takes some major courage to go against what all of society has. And he's like, "Nope, I'm going to be an engineer," and he ends up being good. And Miles does really well to train him and. Hmm. and trust him and and so i like not everything about him but i do definitely respect him in that regard okay. it takes big lobes okay yes <laughs> big lobes sure he has the well he has the lobes for engineering but not for business there you go yes. there you go he's got yeah. big lobes in there yep mhm <laughs> well he apparently he's got negus lobes too but anyway yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't hear a lot of people saying that they lo- that they like Rom. So that's why I'm sort of. I've seen I've seen hesitant. a lot of people say that they like Rom. Yeah, oh, okay. I have. I like Rom to a certain extent. I mean, he. he, he no, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's. He, I mean, overall, he, he's he's a good he's a good character. He's one that grows, and that's what I like about him too. Yeah. Okay. But did, what, what, who's your favorite Ferengi? It's always Quark. Quark. All right. It's a good choice. I love Quark. Quark is so great. He's just, I mean, whenever you see a Ferengi episode, like the Magnificent Ferengi and, um, mm-hmm. oh, what's the other one? Um, I don't remember, but it doesn't matter. Well, I like all the Ferengi episodes. They're great. They're funny. They're humorous. And sometimes they're a little bit overboard. But, yeah. it, you know, obviously, you know, Quark is the one that, you know, is over zealous and you know confident and then when it actually comes down to it he's the he's the pretty cat <laughs> right so. yes <laughs> yeah so it's great yeah. <laughs> nice well i think it's no accident that all our favorite Ferengi are in ds9 i think they really rescued them <laughs> oh yeah 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 i, I was th- trying to pick something there's from one TNG, there's one T- like... there's one tng Ferengi i like and that's dr rega and suspicions the Ferengi scientist oh because uh-huh. he's He's something different than your usual Ferengi. I like him, but he's like the only one. The rest of them are kind of annoying. 
Well, yeah. I mean, but they're evil and conniving in TNG versus like what we see. We see a real personality yeah. in DS Nine. Absolutely, you know the difference. Yeah. So. Yeah, so thank goodness, because yeah. I probably wouldn't have even asked the question if there weren't any DS9 Frankie. <laughs> All right, so now that we've given you that bonus, if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So, Amy, where can people contact you when you're not joining a group of high-tech iconoclasts? Wow. Do I even know what that is? <laughs> it was a, a brief mention. I, I, I basically... Oh, from the first story. From, from the first story, yeah. It, it's it's the, the people that don't like to use technology. Yeah. Oh, well, when I'm not doing that all the time, um, you can find me here on the network where I co-host The Edge with Patrick Devlin, the main show, and that is about Star Trek Discovery. I'm also running postcards from The Edge while season two Discovery is going on where I collect your uh, fan response to each episode, and that has been really fun. I am also on the Fandom Podcast Network doing Discoville, where we talk about the Orville and Discovery with my good friends Haley and Kevin and Kyle. You can find me at Twitter, at Miss Amy Nelson. But my favorite place is right there in the Babel Conference, so find me there. Now, Richard, where can people contact you when you're not yelling at Wesley for forgetting the Prime Directive and reading Robert Frost? (laughs) Is there a time where I'm not yelling at him? No, there is not. Okay. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, well, you guys can find me on the Babel Conference. I pop in here and there, and my Twitter handle is xransom. So, yeah, you can find me there. So, so Justin, um, where can people contact you when you're not seeing winged creatures outside? And what we mean by outside, we mean in space, right? Well, I'm seeing, I'm, I'm. I'm seeing one outside of my window right now. Should I be concerned? I'd be concerned that you're in space right now. <laughs> well, winged creatures aren't just in space. Sometimes they're outside um, my house. As long as it's not the red angel. <laughs> okay. Sorry well, to throw discovery in there. Yeah, but at this, be a savior. I don't know. At, the, at this point, we don't really know whether the red angel is good or bad. But when I'm not seeing winged creatures outside of my house or in space when I dream about space. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek, currently tweeting out my Season 7 rewatch of The Next Generation and lots of other Star Trek stuff. And you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, Michael Huter, and Thomas Appel. Thank you for supporting Traffic. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. 
Gold, gold, gold everywhere. Today is a good day to die! Great joy and gratitude. Thank you.